Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Michelle Miller-Adams joins us to talk about her new book, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity from Harvard Education Press. Uh, Michelle, if you would, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project. Thank you so much, Stephen, and, and thanks for the invitation to join you and your audience today. Uh, you know, I can go way back to uh, growing up in California, where I had access to affordable uh, public higher education that I took advantage of, uh, moved to New York, and for, for a variety of personal reasons, I wound up living about 20 plus years ago in the West Michigan town of Kalamazoo. And in 2005, in Kalamazoo, a group of anonymous donors, very wealthy members of the community, made a promise called the Kalamazoo Promise to send every graduate of the local public school district, which is a a high poverty public school district, to college tuition free and to continue that promise in perpetuity. Uh, At the time, I was casting around for something to write about, and I landed at a research institute in Kalamazoo called the Upjohn Institute, where I wrote a book about the Kalamazoo Promise. Uh, I am also a professor at Grand Valley State University, which is a large regional public university in West Michigan. And for the past 15 years or so, I've been following the trajectory of what I've come to think of as the free college movement. Uh, as it as it has moved from community to community and from state to state, and uh, also occasionally, including a couple of weeks ago, from national leaders like President Biden. So um, it seemed to be time to step back and take a high level look at this movement toward making college tuition free. Think about why it came about, what it looks like, how it might move forward. And um, I was really fortunate to have. Uh, a publisher contact me about this book. Uh, the book is published by Harvard Education Press. I was also fortunate to have the support of my two employers, the F. John Institute and Grand Valley State University to help with the writing of the book. So why don't we begin with a little bit of the history, and you made passing reference to California here. Um, free college is not some radical new development, correct? <laughs> correct. <laughs> it's often presented that way, but it really isn't. It, it's a return to earlier roots of how higher education was provided in the U.S., uh, so talk a little, I and mean, you, you make reference particularly to the California systems and to the City University of New York in particular. Just for folks who may not be familiar with those systems, can you talk about what they offered and at what cost and over what period of time? Sure. And, and these are just two examples that I yeah. wrote about in the book. I, I really enjoy history and my own family's uh, social mobility was profoundly affected by the fact that the University of California system was free. 
at a time when my very poor <laughs> immigrant grandmother brought her family to California. And uh, my mother and my father and all of my aunts and uncles were able to get uh, really high value college degrees at, at almost no cost. Uh, the University of California, uh, well, actually, the, the all three systems of higher education in California were tuition-free from their establishment in the mid-19th century until around 1980, when uh, there, were, there were small fees charged along the way. When I went to the University of California in the 70s, I paid a couple of hundred dollars a semester to enroll. Uh, the really rapid increase in tuition happened after, uh, after the 1970s. But we saw similar things in other places. In the book, I also write about the uh, City College of New York experience, which was, again, over roughly the same time frame, um, a, a tuition-free institution that served New York City's low-income, high-achieving students, uh, many of them immigrants. Uh, but other states had similarly affordable higher education systems, um, particularly through some of their state flagship schools and land-grant institutions. Uh, they weren't free, but they were affordable. And um, that changed in other places as well over roughly the same time frame. And when you think about why that change occurred, you can, you can kind of date these really dramatic increases in tuition back it, it depends how you want to measure them, but you can go back to the 1980s and you can look, or the 1970s, you can look at a combination of greatly expanding demand where more and more people wanted a college degree and declining levels of state financial support for their higher ed systems. And the reasonably priced higher ed just became uh, impossible to sustain between those two forces. Or at least the argument was that it was impossible to sustain. It was impossible to sustain unless states were willing to spend a whole right. lot more money on their higher ed sectors, which right. um, they, they have not been. Right. Yeah. And in, I don't want to bog us down too much in the history, but you know, if we look at California, part of what happened there was, of course, Prop 13, which had yeah. all kinds of consequences on funding for all kinds of public ventures. But that was that was a political choice to, to, to radically reduce the amount of revenue that was available for the state and all kinds of, of projects. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I say um, states need to be willing to fund higher ed, what that means is that their residents need to be willing to pay taxes to support right. higher education. And of course, Proposition 13, the taxpayers' revolt in California in the mid-1970s, put huge strains on uh, California state budgets and higher ed, as well as K-12 schools, lots of the other areas of state expenditures took, took a major hit. Yep. And it, it also turns out to be, I mean, we see this evidence from the 2008 recession, uh, Higher ed, it, it's not an easy place to cut, but it's an easier place to cut spending because higher ed institutions are going to continue to exist. They're just going to shift the burden of attendance uh, onto the students. And that's where you start to see these really uh, dramatic tuition increases when yep. state funding falls. So why don't we do a last bit of brush clearing before we talk about promise programs and 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 <laughs> The form they take in different places. Sure. Um, so, so it's not just obviously that that college is no longer free. It's that, as you reference, the costs have 
increase dramatically six, seven, eight, ten times what they were in the 70s and 80s controlling for inflation. You made reference to one of the factors you point to in the book, the decline in state aid. How else do we explain the the extraordinary increase and now uh, unsustainable for a lot of people costs of higher ed today? Yeah, I think it's important to note that the the increase in the cost looks different in different sectors. Uh, uh, Private independent institutions, your small liberal arts college, which are colleges, which are are fantastically expensive and always have been, uh, the rate of increase hasn't been that high. And it's important to look at what people really pay rather than what the um, sticker price of these right. colleges is. But the, the, and, and community colleges have remained in most states relatively affordable. The uh, price increases that have really hurt uh, affordability have come in that public four-year sector. And um, in the book, I talk about how they're really driven by um, three factors. The first is declining state support at a time when more people wanted to go to college. There are also dramatic increases in in administrative spending. Uh, Anyone who spends time at a a university like I do knows, you know, we have a lot of deans, associate deans, assistant deans, administrators. um, (laughs) Second assistant, vice provost for, yep. And you can think about that uh, as administrative bloat and why do we need all these deans? But if you look carefully at what they do, most of that growth isn't in the high levels of administration, it's in compliance with a lot of new requirements that universities face and a lot of new services that they need to provide to support their student body. So you'll see growth in various centers and you'll see legal, regulatory um, growth as well. Um, Also, a very well-publicized reason um, that a lot of people uh, cling to to explain rising tuition costs is uh, kind of the amenities argument, the look of a college or university, those those climbing walls and rec centers and lazy rivers that, you know, my university doesn't have a lazy river, but, but some of them do. And um, those, <coughs> excuse me, those are very visible symbols of um, rising college prices, but they don't really account for that much of the story. And as demographics change and we start to see the potential pool of college enrollees decline, uh, how a university looks and the amenities that it can offer its potential students are actually pretty important in being able to attract those students. So these are investments um, schools are making in trying to attract Uh, students as enrollment is declining. If you look at the contribution of these three different uh, forces that are pushing for rising prices, overwhelmingly the largest is cutbacks in state funding for higher education. Um, Another really important issue around affordability is what has happened to the Pell Grant. So the Pell Grant is the main source of grant aid for low-income students, and it comes from the federal government. And it's what you get once you fill out your your free application for federal student aid, which is uh, shorthand is is the FAFSA. Um, Pell Grants used to cover most, three quarters of the cost of attending a public university on average. And that's not just tuition, that's the full cost of attendance. Uh, Pell Grants today, Pell Grants have never been indexed for inflation or for 
the rise in college prices, Pell Grants today only cover about 25% of the full cost of attending a public institution. So that has really hurt the ability of lower income students to be able to afford a, a, a college degree without taking on a lot of student debt. So I know many of your listeners are going to be familiar with the fact that we have a major student loan debt problem, and and that's where it comes from. It's not just profligate students borrowing. It's that college has become unaffordable for both the middle class and lower income students. Great. So there's there's the nature of the problem. Uh, let's talk about uh, uh, free college solutions. So, so what are promise programs? Yes. And it's important to spend a minute on this term because um, Mm -hmm. it can be confusing. There is no official definition of a promise program, and there is no organization that says, this is a promise program, this is not a promise program. Um, the, The promise movement is made up of literally hundreds of local efforts to provide a tuition free path to college for a portion of a community's residents. So at the Upjohn Institute, we've developed a definition, we've created a database, we have about 200 communities and community colleges that offer a tuition-free path to their residents. Now, increasingly, we have states doing the same thing. There are about 17 states, maybe 15 to 20, depending on how you define the program, that offer tuition-free college to some portion of their residents. Uh, the, the, the problem and the challenge when you have a very uh, heterogeneous, grassroots-driven movement like this is that the programs look very different from each other. And this is, of course, one of the fun things, but also one of the challenges of studying the Promise Movement is that every single program is a little bit different from every other program. But they have uh, features in common. And the key feature of a Promise program is that uh, scholarship support, tuition support is offered based not on whether you are poor or whether you are an exceptionally good student. It is based on where you live, where you attend school, and for how long. And so another term that we use to describe this movement is that these are place-based scholarships. And this is a new idea in the world of financial aid, dating back back to about 2005 when the Kalamazoo Promise was introduced, that whether or not you get this tuition support depends on where you live and the school district you attend. And that is really the essential piece of the model. It's geographically based. So, and and, and there, and you do describe this throughout the book, there are other, other kinds of programs that instead of being geographic based and universal in that way, uh, instead target resources uh, and set academic requirements or others target resources to particular income categories of people. How do you think about uh, uh, those kinds of programs, the geographic universal ones, the ones with academic requirements versus the ones with income requirements in terms of how they understand what it is that they're doing. And maybe we can use that as a segue to talk about which models you think are most effective and I'll let you de- define effective. <laughs> so. Okay. That sounds good. Yes. Um, within that fundamental attribute of these promise programs that they are based in a place. There are a lot of variations. There are variations in which students get them and which higher ed institutions they can attend and how much money they're going to get. But a critical distinction is when you, you mention whether the scholarship is going to be available to everyone 
potentially everyone or virtually everyone within that place, or whether there are various merit or need requirements that are stacked on top of the geographic requirements. So um, I'll just contrast two program, three programs for you. In Kalamazoo, every student graduating from the Kalamazoo Public Schools, provided they've spent a, a, a length of time within the district, receives a tuition scholarship, tuition and fees to whatever institution they can get into. Um, there is also a wonderful Promise program in Pittsburgh called the Pittsburgh Promise. Uh, to that, to get that scholarship funding, you need to have at least a 2.0 GPA, which enables you to go to the local community college, or a 2.5 high school GPA, which allows you to get the full scholarship. Uh, in Denver, there's a, a Promise program that that goes where scholarships go to students that meet a similar kind of academic threshold, but also have some demonstrated financial need. So you see, um, you see a wide variety. Uh, what what these place-based scholarships seek to do is not just provide scholarships to individual students, but also to change systems, to change communities, to change school districts. Uh, so they have what I think about and write in the book about as kind of a, a public and a private face. The private face is what it does for individuals and families, allowing them an affordable path into higher education. And ideally through higher education. The, the public face or the collective benefit is that communities that are able to educate a large portion of their young people are going to be economically more successful communities. And that's what has brought those, those potential economic development benefits, the potential impact on making school districts um, have a more robust college-going culture, the potential to engage broad community members in supporting students on their way to and through higher ed. That's what has made this model so attractive. My feeling is that if you're really committed to this idea of community transformation or transforming your state's workforce, uh, the fewer requirements and limitations on the scholarship, the better. I am a big fan, and I think this comes through in, in my writing, but also in my regular conversation. I'm a big fan of universal programs that allow everyone to have a shot at some kind of post-secondary experience, because there's a whole bunch of different kinds of post-secondary experiences. And uh, today, one really needs to have some kind of uh, degree or credential or certificate to get a good job. Uh, so um, I think that I, I understand where communities are coming from when they limit their scholarships by income or by academic merit, but in doing so, and sometimes they have powerful reasons for doing that, but in doing so, they're diminishing the potential transformative impact of their programs. So you've you've outlined for us a lot of, of the, the various kinds of goals that different institutions and localities have in mind when they institute these kinds of programs. What can you tell us about what we know about uh, the features that the most effective and sustainable of those pro programs seem to have in common? There are a lot of wonderful programs out there, and um, depending on how they're constructed and designed, they're going to have different impacts. But we do know a few things from our years of research, not just carried out by my, my colleagues and myself, but, but many other people as well. 
into places as diverse as, as Kalamazoo, Michigan, El Dorado, Arkansas, the state of Tennessee, the state of Oregon. We know, we know some things. We know that promise programs will be most effective if they are simple to talk about, easy to understand, and easy to access. There are programs that have a lot of uh, requirements and fine print and nuance, and that is a recipe for people misunderstanding the benefit and um, also for limiting take up of the scholarship when um, it's difficult to understand exactly what is on the table. So um, simple programs, easy to message about, easy to access are really critical and tend to have strong impacts in terms of how many people use them. Uh, another thing that we know is that is that money matters when you can offer uh, students who might not otherwise have gone on to higher education uh, new resources, and you can really make good on that message of not only is college affordable, but you are not going to pay any tuition to go on to higher ed. That's going to have a very strong impact, and we see stronger impacts um, on enrollment and progression and completion in communities that really bring new resources to students. But we've also learned that money is not the only thing that matters. And you can have a scholarship that brings new people into the college-going pipeline. But if you're not able to help those students find the right post-secondary degree or credential program that aligns with their interests and their, and their aptitudes, and if you're not able to support people who maybe don't have a lot of familiarity with college and, and what college involves, then you're not going to translate that wider pipeline into more degrees and credentials. So student support is really critical and sometimes becomes uh, gets a little under-attended to. The focus often tends to be on the money or on the tuition piece rather than the student support piece. So those are, those are three findings around effectiveness that I think have come out quite strongly from about 15 years of, of observation and research. So as, as you've pointed out, to, to, to do this at scale is both expensive and labor intensive. Does that suggest that ultimately this is going to have to be a federal program rather than sort of the, the typical U.S. style patchwork right. um, variation <laughs> from place to place that we wind up with in so many policy locales? Yeah, we do have that patchwork system right now. Whether you have the opportunity to go to college tuition-free depends on, on where you live and, or where you move. Some states uh, have programs, others don't. Some localities do, most don't. Uh, so we very much have that, that bottom-up patchwork system. Um, I guess I would say that uh, a lot of these programs are less expensive than you would think they are. And that is because um, many of the statewide programs make use, already make use of federal grant aid that is available to low-income students. So, for example, in the state of Tennessee, there are two programs, uh, one for recent high school graduates called Tennessee Promise, one for adults without college degrees called Tennessee Reconnect. In, in both of those cases, students are invited into the program and then they go through a series of steps, which include filling out their FAFSA and getting their Pell Grants. And those Pell Grants are used first to cover the cost of college. 
And the state program pays for whatever's left over or for students who don't qualify for Pell Grants. Um, there are some real equity issues, which I won't get into in too much detail here with that program structure, but it turns out to be a pretty inexpensive way to send a lot of people to college because it's bringing a bunch of people into that FAFSA, FAFSA Pell process who were not otherwise there before. It's not a coincidence that Tennessee since the Tennessee Promise was introduced, has the highest FAFSA filing rates of any state in the nation. Mm -hmm. uh, in Michigan last year, we um, had our, our governor propose and our legislature approve, which in itself is amazing because they never really agree on much of anything, a, a program for tuition-free community college for adults. And it's the same kind of last dollar after Pell program. And it's very reasonable. The legislature appropriated uh, $30 million for the program and close to 100,000 students have applied for it. So um, these are not necessarily very expensive programs. If they are done in a way that is equitable and brings new money to students, they're not going to be done this way. They're going to be more expensive. And um, the scholarship money is going to come in first allowing students to hold on to their Pell Grants to help cover their living expenses. And this is the program model that President Biden has proposed, and it is more expensive, but it's also going to be more effective. However, it's limited to the community college sector, which is a very reasonable sector uh, when it comes to higher ed costs. Uh, so you've you've uh, led me to where I wanted for us to conclude, Michelle, which is to ask you to talk a little bit about uh, both what you think of what the Biden administration has done in terms of access to higher education so far, and what are the things that you are looking for, both from the administration and the Department of Education uh, and from Congress itself? Right. Um, they, they haven't done a lot, but it's early, early days. And given how early the days are, I think there have been some really important moves. Uh, during the campaign, the, the Biden-Harris administration was actually committed to two different uh, free college programs. One of them was universal free community college that would be paid for largely by the federal government with some state matching funding and um, very much modeled along the lines of some of the programs we've been talking about, but with this uh, generous first dollar approach where students would retain use of their Pell Grants if they're eligible for that. Uh, the other program that the administration was on the record as supporting uh, related more to some earlier proposals that came from Senator Bernie Sanders, making public four-year colleges and universities tuition-free for families earning up to $125,000 a year. And that is a more expensive program. It's also a politically uh, it's a program that's politically more challenging to pass. It doesn't tend to draw the same kind of bipartisan support of the community college-based programs that we've seen in places like Tennessee and Michigan. And so in its first 100 days, the Biden administration came out uh, at the end of April with its American Families Plan, which includes that more, in a way it's more limited, in a way it's more expansive, but that two-year universal free community college federal state partnership. And um, that is a program that I think is politically viable, extremely beneficial from two standpoints. One is uh, it will really help generate the degrees 
and credentials that are needed in today's economy. So it's going to have a pretty quick impact on uh, having a better trained workforce. And it has some really important equity impacts. It, uh, community colleges are generally not attended by the affluent. And so simply by targeting that sector, this is going to bring a lot of new resources to low-income, first-generation uh, students. In the proposal, I, I need to mention that there was also funding for two years of education at minority-serving institutions, which are generally four-year colleges, historically Black colleges and universities, tribal colleges. And so there was a piece of uh, tuition-free funding, particularly for those institutions. But for now, the four-year public university and college free tuition program is not being pursued. That does not mean it won't be pursued. Um, the Biden administration uh, has, has future plans to do more in the education sphere, um, but this is what they led with. And, and it was very interesting to me that they tied it to another uh, free education program for universal high-quality pre-K for three- and four-year-olds. And these two programs were tied together and the rationale, which is a powerful rationale, is that, you know, 100 years ago, we decided people need 12 and now 13 years of public, publicly funded education. And the world has changed a lot in 100 years. And arguably, we need more education now to be successful in today's economy, maybe more like 16 or 17 years with a couple of those years at the front end and a couple at the back end. And so I think, I think this is a great program. I think it has a narrow, narrow path to passage. There's legislation in Congress already. I think, in fact, there are three separate uh, free college type bills in, in Congress, but one of them matches the Biden proposal quite closely. And I have, I have high hopes for it. Um, it's the program design that, that I would have chosen given the current political and economic and societal situation that we're facing. And so, you know, I hope I hope it works. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we've been speaking today with Michelle Miller-Adams about her new book, The Path to Free College in Pursuit of Access, Equity, and Prosperity, new from Harvard Education Press. Michelle, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Stephen. I've really enjoyed it. 